Hello and welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts that's all about Scotland's history. You never guess from the title alone, would you? Uh, my name is Daniel. Daniel Downey, I'm your host, I'm a stand-up comedian based here in Edinburgh, and I do a thing in the city, it's called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh, and what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history, and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is, that is what these series of podcasts are all about, is I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully as you listen to this episode, you'll learn a bit and you'll laugh a bit as well. Uh, Today's podcast is all about the National Covenant signed in Edinburgh's Greyfriars Kirkyard on the 28th of February 1638. Copies of the National Covenant were sent around Scotland, they were sent around the country, and pretty soon it had acquired more signatures than is required to send something to the EU post-Brexit, so pretty impressive, I'm sure you'll agree. Now, the National Covenant was a response to Charles I's attempts to impose English Anglicanism on Presbyterian Scotland. Now, I have poked quite a bit of fun at Presbyterians on this podcast, right? I have described Presbyterians as being the Protestant Taliban. I've accused them of being pretty fucking miserable, which I think the fact that they signed their most important document in their history in a graveyard probably helps to illustrate. But Charles was way out of line trying to impose English Anglicanism on Scotland. Trying to force Scottish people to give up their Presbyterianism is not on. Because if there is one thing that us Scottish people will defend until our last dying moments, until our last breath, then it is our God-given right to be completely and utterly fucking miserable. All right? That's what Braveheart was really about, folks. Now listen, if this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, right, this is the sort of thing that you should expect. I'm not going to lie to you, this is mainly Scottish history mixed with a lot of Tory bashing and jobby jokes. If that sounds like your thing, you'll enjoy it. If this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, can I suggest you go back to the start? All of the podcasts, or all the uh, episodes, I should say, they go in chronological order. They give a wee bit of background in the one that follows it. They're all named as well, so you can jump in it like Mary Queen of Scots or William Wallace or Robert the Bruce. Um, basically, go through the back catalogue. That's what I suggest to my new listeners. Right, anyway, so without further ado, folks, here is your podcast all about the National Covenant. I do hope Hope you enjoy it. Have fun out there, and I shall see you all on the other side. Enjoy! Charles I was born in Dunfermline on the 19th of November 1600, and he was a sickly child. Charles suffered from rickets that stunted his growth. He would grow to only five foot tall. He talked with a stammer, and he couldn't walk without support. He taught himself how to ride as a child, which helped to straighten his legs out, because rickets, it makes your legs go all bent. Charles, he had legs like the Isle of Man, you know, until he sorted them out by riding, which is exactly how our current leader in London approaches most of his problems as well. Charles was considered the runt of the royal Stuart litter. He lived in the shadow of his brilliant, charismatic, popular older brother, Prince Henry, and his beautiful and vivacious older sister, Elizabeth. But... I mean, it shouldn't really have mattered. You know, you don't need to be charismatic or vivacious to become leader of the country. You just need to have gone to the right private school, don't you? 
Now, where Henry was extrovert, athletic and outgoing, Charles, he was withdrawn, studious, studious, sorry, and a keen patron of the arts. And after Prince Henry's death in 1612, Charles became heir to the throne, but he had received none of the schooling and statescraft that Henry had received. And the population, they weren't exactly enthused about the younger Stuart brother becoming king. It would be like if they were to replace Gary Lineker with Wayne Lineker. On match of the day, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't exactly well received, you know. When it came to Scotland, Charles knew little of his country of birth. He was only three years old when the royal family moved to London, and he had no experience of Scotland or of Scottish affairs and Scottish politics. He was even excluded from James's only return to Scotland in 1617. He was born in Fife, spent his entire political career in England and was totally out of touch with what the people of Scotland wanted. Charles was the the Gordon Brown of the 17th century. Charles was coronated at Westminster Abbey on the 2nd of February 1626, but it would be another seven years before a Scottish coronation at Holyrood on the 18th of June 1633. The delay was considered a snub to the country of his birth and his royal lineage. Since Charles was born in Scotland and from a Scottish royal family, many felt that it was Scotland where he should have been coronated first. The fact that he waited eight years after becoming king showed his indifference to his Scottish kingdom. So Charles, he was born in Scotland, moved immediately to England, didn't care about Scotland, didn't know anything about Scotland, was five foot tall, pasty white and walked with a limp. I mean, these are all qualities and characteristics that really should have got him a call up to the national side. One thing Charles did inherit from his father was a belief in absolutism, in the divine right of kings, or the divine right of kims, as it's known in Korea. Thank you very much. Uh, Basically, like James, Charles believed in his absolute power as king, and like his father, he was determined to use this power to impose Anglicanism on Scotland and create a united church across his kingdoms under the English Episcopal system. Charles's nickname was Little God, a nickname that he acquired 350 years before Lionel Messi. Charles's father, James VI of Scotland and James I of England, he had valued peace and good relationships with Europe above all else. Hard to imagine, I know, right? And James had made a strong gesture to Protestant Europe by marrying his daughter Elizabeth to Frederick V, the Elector Palatine of the Rhine. But he was also keen to find favour with Catholic Europe to try and display neutrality. So he pushed for a marriage between Charles and Maria the Infantana of Spain, the daughter of King Philippe IV. So to be as neutral as possible, James had his daughter marry a Protestant, he wanted his son to marry a Catholic, and he declared that he was in fact a Partick Thistle supporter. So everyone was kept happy. But diplomacy failed, and the marriage proposal between Charles and Maria fell through. And when that happened, Charles and his close companion, George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham, they set out on a a madcap romantic scheme to try and win Maria's heart. Charles and Buckingham, they travelled to Spain in person, in disguise, under the terrible pseudonyms of Jack and Tom Smith. They were pretending to be contestants on Love Island. And their plan was to go over there and try and meet with and woo Maria in person. Now, George Villiers, he was the the Duke of Buckingham, and he was the last of James VI, inverted commas, favourites before he died, which, as I'm sure you've already guessed, just means that James was shagging him. It's just like how Jennifer Arcuri is one of Boris Johnson's many, inverted commas, favourites. 
Buckingham had considerable influence within the royal court and was something of a surrogate older brother to young Charles, and their crazy scheme almost worked despite their awful pseudonyms and terrible disguises. Everyone knew exactly who they were by the time they had reached Madrid, but Charles fell madly in love with Maria and a marriage treaty was signed in 1623. As part of the treaty, Charles promised to respect Maria's religion and would allow any children to be raised as Catholic, but Maria didn't exactly return Charles's affections. She said she would rather become a nun than marry a Protestant heretic like Charles, which, I mean, considering Charles was from Fife, he was actually expected to marry a sister, to be fair. To James VI's despair, the marriage treaty was repudiated and Charles returned to England and Maria, she married the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand III. When Charles returned to England, attention turned to another Catholic European match, the 15-year-old French princess Henrietta Maria. This time, negotiations went without a hitch. James VI's death in March 1625 delayed the wedding ceremony, but on May Day 1625, Charles and Henrietta Maria were married by proxy in Paris. Now, there was tensions in the relationship to begin with. Henrietta Maria was unhappy with the influence that the Duke of Buckingham was able to exert on the court. Buckingham, he was a remarkably unpopular character. Such was his behaviour on his and Charles's Spanish trip that the Spanish had actually requested that Buckingham be ex executed when he returned to England, an Englishman making a tit of himself in Spain, who'd have thought it? Eh? The French also put in a polite request when the English fans returned from Euro 2016 to have them beheaded as well. Now, Buckingham, he was the, the, Lord and, the Lord Admiral of the Royal Navy. He was the dominant force in Irish affairs, and he was a god-awful politician. He spent public funds and accepted bribes for his numerous adventures, mainly attacking the Spanish and supporting the French Protestant Huguenots. Public money it was spent funding his inappropriate illegal adventures. Buckingham was the, the Prince Andrew of his time, I suppose. He was stabbed to death in a pub in Portsmouth the day after lockdown was lifted in August 1628 and his assassin John Felton was hanged for the murder but he's still remembered as a local legend in the town to this day. Only in Portsmouth could they uh, celebrate someone who stabbed someone to death. It was after Buckingham's death that Charles and Henrietta's relationship grew in strength. It took a royal death to solidify their relationship, a bit like Charles and Camilla. Henrietta was a rock in Charles's life, and he loved her with single-minded devotion. Together, they had nine children, including the future Charles II and James VII of Scotland and II of England. Charles's Scottish kingdom was run from London with the king's placemen in charge in Scotland, men such as William Alexander, Earl of Stirling, and James Hamilton, the Marquis of Hamilton. Scotland, it was being run from an office in London, which is what Douglas Ross wants you to vote for 400 years on. Preparations were made for Charles's Scottish coronation in 1628 and in 1631, but it wasn't until 1633 that Charles finally made the trip. It took him eight years to make it to Scotland. He was obviously travelling with ScotRail. Charles didn't give a shit about his Scottish coronation and only cared about England. He was like Brendan Rogers. The coronation at Holyrood, it was done with full Anglican liturgy and robes. It was purposely Anglican to demonstrate Charles's high kingship and his position at the head of the church. It was an English coronation in Scotland, like when they choose a new leader of the Scottish Conservative Party. It was designed to be antagonistic to Scottish Presbyterians who didn't recognise the king as head of the church or the ecclesiastical structure of the Anglican church. Charles, he even introduced a Sunday ferry crossing to Stornoway to really piss the Presbyterians off. 
As part of the coronation celebrations, the High Kirk at St Giles in Edinburgh was made into a cathedral, a title that the church retained despite being a Presbyterian kirk. Edinburgh was uh, granted a city charter and was formally designated as the capital of the kingdom. And in 1632, work began on a Scottish Parliament building which held Scottish Parliaments in Edinburgh's old town from 1639 until the Parliament was dissolved in the Act of Union in 1707 and the building became the Court of Session, Scotland's highest civil court. Charles placed bishops in the Privy Council and gave them the power to choose Lords of the Articles. The Lords of the Articles were like a parliamentary committee. It was their job to delegate the drafting of parliamentary acts to different members of Parliament and oversee the work of the government. The bishops could appoint Lords of the Articles who supported Charles's religious policy of trying to assimilate the practices of the Church in Scotland with the Anglican Church in England and create a single church across the three kingdoms. The bishops... They were able to influence and oversee the running of government and ensure Scotland fell into line with England. It's like what the Etonians do nowadays. One of Charles's first acts as king was the Revocation Act. It was enacted in 1625 before Charles was even coronated and allowed the king to claim back lands that had previously belonged to the church and were then redistributed after the Reformation in Scotland. Basically, Everything Charles was doing was purposely done to annoy Scottish people. It was the sort of inane shit like putting union flags on all of the produce in Tesco's that would eventually push people in Scotland to breaking point. In 1636, Charles issued a code of canons, a set of church laws. The first rule of church is do not talk about church. The second rule of church is do not talk about church. Ah, uh, wait, sorry, actually, that's the that's the rules of the Catholic Church. I'm getting mixed up there. But uh, the Code of Canons, it was designed to bring the Scottish Kirk into line with the practices of the Anglican Church, and it was deeply unpopular in Scotland, as you can imagine. But what really caused uproar and outrage was Charles's introduction of a new prayer book, the Common, or sorry, the Book of Common Prayer for Scotland in 1637. Now, the prayer book itself was fairly uncontroversial. It was written by Scottish bishops and made concessions to Scottish modes of worship. The anger came from the fact that the prayer book had been introduced to Scotland by the Crown and the Crown alone without notifying the Scottish Parliament or the General Assembly. It was the European Super League of its time. On Sunday the 23rd of July 1637, the Dean of St Giles Cathedral, James Hanney, tried to use the new prayer book in a service when a local street trader called Jenny Geddes famously hurled her stool at his head. And by stool I mean what she was sat on, do you know what I mean? Like, we're not that bad in Scotland, she wasn't throwing handfuls of shite at the guy, yeah. Now, in terms of heckles from angry Scottish women, that would rank somewhere in the middle. You know, somewhere between getting a drink thrown at you and getting stabbed in the neck with a stiletto. And normally, when Scottish women do something like this, it results in what we call a rammy here in Scotland, where all hell breaks loose. It's kind of wild, wild west saloon-style chili con garbage. Jenny Geddes... She managed to spark riots across the country that would lead to war in Scotland, that would lead to war across the three kingdoms and result in the king getting his head chopped off, proving that you really, really do not want to piss off Scottish women, folks. 
Stools, Bibles, stones, they were all hurled at James Haney and the Edinburgh town guard, they were called in to remove the unruly mob who'd continued to batter the locked doors of the church and throw stones at the window. The riot that started with Jenny Geddes throwing her stool broke out into riots in churches across the country soon after. In the aftermath of the riots, petitions were presented to the king. They asked for the removal of all Anglican practices in Scotland and of the common prayer book. The Petitioners, they appointed four tables. These were four committees, one consisting of prominent noblemen, another of lairds, another of burgesses, and another of church ministers. Ronnie Corbett was a member. Uh, actually, sorry, do you know what? I'm getting that mixed up with the, with the four candles. But the four tables were essentially an informal parliament. There was also the four lathers, the four chairs, and the Dudley boys and aging Christian were invited to take part in a four tables, four ladders, four chairs match. In December 1637, the Four Tables demanded the removal of the Common Prayer Book, Anglican practices in Scottish churches, and the removal of bishops from the Privy Council. Charles dismissed their petitions and threatened to charge its signatories with treason. The King, he didn't give a shit about the Four Tables. He had four golden pianos, for Christ's sake. The response to his royal rebuffal was one of the most important and famous documents in Scottish history, the 1638 National Covenant. The National Covenant was another petition that was to be put to the King, but this time the Four Tables invited the whole nation to sign. Everyone in Scotland was invited to sign on. Ah, uh, no wait, sorry, actually, that's, uh, that's Margaret Thatcher that did that, but... The National Covenant, it renounced Catholicism and vowed to uphold Presbyterianism. It contained a list of the statutes and acts by which the Presbyterian Church had been established, and it called for free parliaments and assemblies not rigged by the King. It pledged to disregard Charles's ecclesiastical innovations and to defend Presbyterianism, Presbyterianism against all sorts of persons whatsoever. On the 28th of February 1638, the Covenant was signed at Ibrox Stadium, eh, sorry, Greyfriars Kirkyard in Edinburgh. The Covenant was signed on the first day by the nobles and barons, then the next day by the burgesses and ministers, and finally by the plebs. Copies of the National Covenant were dispatched by messengers across the country except for the Gallic Northwest Highlands and Aberdeen, which was a bastion of episcopy. Thousands upon thousands signed. It was the greatest act of national unity Scotland had ever displayed. The National Covenant was an expression of Scotland's opposition to the King and its distrust of England, but it was also a declaration of national identity. The most united the country has ever been is when it came to telling the king to fuck off which is why an independent scotland needs to be a republic nothing brings scottish people together quite like telling the monarch to fuck off i mean we'd much rather have a highland cow and a tea towel than the queen in Scotland. The National Covenant was carefully moderate. It asked for the maintenance of religion and of the king's authority, but fundamentally it was a manifesto against Charles's arbitrary use of royal power. But for some of the Covenanters, it was much more than that. To them, the Covenant was a pact with God. They saw the Scots as being God's chosen people. God's chosen people are angry, pasty white Presbyterians, apparently. It's why Rangers fans sing, We Are The People. It would be these extreme religious and political views of some of the Covenanters that would lead to war in Scotland. Because, you know, people who claim to be God's chosen people do tend to be a bit mental, a bit aggressive, a bit into Krav Maga, you know? 
The National Covenant, it was an exercise in civic duty and republicanism. In the 17th century, the role of religion in life at a national and personal level was so exalted that the, pursu the pursuit of the purest form of religion was tantamount to personal achievement, political and economic success. The Covenanters blurred the lines between ecclesiastical and political issues. God was actively involved in the affairs of the state and the human soul. But, you know, he took no part in what football team you supported. Because, I mean, basing what team you support on your religion, that would just be insane, right? The National Covenant was a vision of godly government. The people of Scotland were vowing to take responsibility for their own governance, but also for their own worship. The two, they weren't mutually exclusive. They were as important as each other. Basically, instead of letting a monarch tell us what to do, we would let God tell us what to do, which I suppose is kind of progress, you know what I mean? But it would lead to, you know, America. And, uh, and they, well, you know, they like to let God tell them what to do. They certainly won't let a king tell them what to do, but, uh, but they're quite happy to let Donald Trump tell them what to do. So, you know. The king made various royal proclamations against the Covenanters. He said he'd rather die than yield to their will, to which the Covenanters replied that they'd rather die than renounce the covenant. Charles sent his royal commissioner, James Hamilton, the Marcus of Hamilton, to offer a truce, but he gave him private instructions. He said to Hamilton, flatter them with what hopes you please to win time until I am able to repress them. But he's basically, it's like in 2014, you know, when they were telling us that we needed to vote against independence if we wanted to stay in the EU, when actually what they meant was, we will force you to leave the EU against your will a couple of years later. As part of this hidden agenda, Charles agreed that the General Assembly, which is the elected heads of the Presbyterian Kirk, could meet. Now, the General Assembly had not met in over 20 years after James VI had banned meetings of the Assembly in 1618. They met in Glasgow on the 21st November 1638 and nominated various landowners and nobles as church elders, men such as Archibald Campbell, the Duke and future Marquess of Argyll. Argyll was chief of Clan Campbell and he controlled vast tracts of Western Scotland. He'd become the figurehead of the Covenanting movement, but he wasn't particularly predisposed to ultra-Presbyterianism to begin with. But the king was such an arsehole, he attended the General Assembly and became a hardline Covenanter, which is fair enough, I suppose. You know, I'd become a theatin in Scientology before I ever supported the fucking monarchy. He was a small, utterly charmless man, but he was intelligent, an astute politician, and the most wealthy and powerful nobleman in Scotland. His rivalry with James Graham, the Marcus of Montrose, would dominate Scotland in the 1640s and the wars to come. Montrose was a signatory of the National Covenant, but when the Covenanters' religious and political ideology became more extreme, he became the leader of the King's Royalist forces in Scotland. These men's political ideologies and their personalities were polar opposites, and their rivalry has caught the imagination. Argyll, the great covenanting leader and politician, stern moralist, anti-royal, anti-Catholic, anti-Episcopal. And Montrose, the royalist commander, swashbuckling, dashing, brave, romantic, charismatic and loyal to the king in the end. In the 19th century, four young men from Glasgow would combine the ultra-Presbyterian extremism of Argyll and the Covenanters and combine it with the blind loyalty to the monarchy of Montrose and the Royalists and they would create a football club called Rangers, which, you know, combined the worst of both worlds. On the 28th of November 1638, James Hamilton, the Marcus of Hamilton, declared the dissolution of the General Assembly. 
But the assembly continued to sit in defiance because, I mean, anything is better than having to go back to class, you know, even if your assembly is all about God. The General Assembly voted to annul the 1636 Code of Canons and the 1637 Common Prayer Book and to depose all bishops in Scotland. Those who continued to sit at the assembly were now in defiance of royal will and to Charles, their actions were tantamount to a declaration of war. Scotland was ill-prepared to raise an army for war. There were few troops and we didn't have those nuclear weapons handy back then either. With the monarch in England after the Union of the Crowns, there were few opportunities to rise through the army ranks in Scotland. Opportunities were few and far between, thanks to the king's a pound spent in Croydon is more beneficial from a strict utilitarian calculation point of view than a pound spent in Strathclyde approach. Most Scots soldiers went to Europe to fight as mercenaries in the Thirty Years' War, a series of religious wars fought in Germany and Central Europe between 1618 and 1648. One of those Scots soldiers was Alexander Leslie, who had risen to the rank of Field Marshal in the army of Gustav II Adolf, the Lion of the North. Gustav Adolf, Lion of the North, Boris Johnson, lies to the North. As mad to think at that time, Gustav Adolf was the most famous Adolf in the world. You know, the next Adolf to come along, we weren't going to forget him in a hurry, were we? Gustav II Adolf was the champion of Protestantism in the Thirty Years' War and was King of Sweden from 1611 to 1632. He utilised Scots mercenaries, valuing their bravery and toughness. The battle-hardened Leslie returned to Scotland and took with him a corps of experienced troops. Charles thought that he could deal with the Covenanters easily, however. He had support from the powerful George Gordon, the Marquess of Huntley, and many of the Highland clans as well, who had remained predominantly Catholic after the, after the Reformation. He held Edinburgh and Dumbarton castles and had control of the navy, allowing him to blockade the Firth of Forth. Charles planned to muster an army, march through the borders and take Edinburgh, but to raise an army, Charles would require the support of the English Parliament and at the beginning of 1639, Charles had run his kingdom for 10 years without calling a Parliament. Not that that stopped its MPs from claiming expenses for headphones, mind you. What followed was the Bishop Wars of 1639 and 1640. Now, most of the fighting was actually between feuding Scottish families, but the title, Bishop Wars, it shows how people viewed what they were fighting over. This was a war against Anglican episcopy more than it was a rebellion against the king. Charles quickly realised his English subjects had little appetite for war, and many, in fact, sympathised with the Covenanters' cause. They sympathised with Scotland's position. They recognised that the leader in London was an incompetent arsehole trying to impose his will on a country that didn't agree with his nihilist policies, and they mostly respected and understood our grievances. And to those English people, I encourage you all to move to Scotland after independence. Charles was unable to conscript an army from the English Parliament. He was able to muster an army of around 20,000 drawn from the militiamen of the northern counties, but they were poorly trained and poorly equipped. Charles's plan was to march his army from York to Berwick, while an army from Dublin and another from Ulster would land at Dumbarton and attack from the west. This two-pronged Irish attack, however, never materialised. Dublin and Ulster were always more likely to fight with each other than anyone else. Charles sent the Marquess of Hamilton North with a naval expedition that failed to make land thanks to the screeds of paperwork and red tape required after Brexit. And Charles led his army from York to Berwick, while Alexander Leslie marched a similar-sized covenanting army of far more experienced and better-equipped troops to Duns on the Scottish side of the River Tweed. 
Charles realised he couldn't give fight, and a truce, the pacification of Berwick, was signed at Berwick on the 18th of June 1639. Charles had realised pretty quickly that he couldn't give fight to the Presbyterians, but, I mean, at least he got a trip to Dubai out of it, you know? The only fighting that took place in 1639 occurred in the North East, where George Gordon, the Earl of Huntley, crossed swords with James Graham, the Earl of Montrose, who was still on the covenanting side at this point. Montrose took Aberdeen and then captured Huntley. The Earl of Huntley's second son, James the Viscount of Aboyne, attempted a counter-attack but was outmanoeuvred by Montrose at the Battle of Brigadier on the 19th of June 1639. Now, there had been very little fighting overall and very few casualties. There was no Matt Hancock around back then to get the death toll up. But the Covenanters were buoyed. All of King Charles' strategies fell apart. He was an inexperienced military leader and he had nothing like the support he expected from his English subjects. In April 1640, Charles reluctantly convened what became known as the Short Parliament. It was the first parliament he had called in England for 11 years because, you know, you don't need a parliament to run a country, not when you've got Dominic Cummings at hand. He desperately needed the support of the English Parliament to raise an army and put down the Covenanters in Scotland, but the Parliament had little appetite for war with Scotland, and he failed to gain the necessary support. So back then you had to open a Parliament to try and stop the Scots, whereas of course nowadays you'd have to try and shut down a Parliament to try and stop the Scots. Charles's short Parliament was dissolved after only three weeks. In August 1640, the Covenanters took Edinburgh and Dumbarton castles. The Marquis of Argyll then advanced into the pro-royalist clans in the west while a covenanting army numbering 20,000 under the command of Alexander Leslie and with Montrose at its head marched into England headed for Newcastle. They crossed the Tweed at Newburn on the 20th of August 1640 where they encountered the defences of Charles' so-called new army of around 5,000 men. The Scots heavily outnumbering the English is pretty standard for a weekend in Newcastle to be fair. After smashing through the new army defences, the Covenanters entered Newcastle on the 28th of August 1640, effectively marking the end of the war after only 10 days. The whole thing was over after 10 days, like this season's Scottish Premiership title challenge. The only other significant military action in 1640 occurred at Caverlick Castle in Dumfrieshire, where the Earl of Nysdale held out against a 13-week Covenanter siege before he was ordered to surrender the castle by Charles on the 26th of September, 1640. On the 26th of October, a truce was signed between the Royalists and Covenanters at Ripon in North Yorkshire, marking an end to the Bishop Wars. As part of the treaty, Charles agreed to pay a huge sum to the Scots Covenanters for quartering their army in England. It was money Charles didn't have. Again, he would have to call a parliament in England, this time not to fight the Covenanters, but to raise money to pay them off. In the autumn of 1641, Charles visited Edinburgh and in a speech to the Scottish Parliament, he assured Scotland's religion and liberty would be acknowledged and he admitted that Andy Murray was Scottish. He agreed to uphold the Parliament's decision to abolish episcopacy in Scotland and allowed the Scottish Parliament to meet a minimum of every three years with or without the consent of the King. He agreed that the General Assembly could vet nominations to the Privy Council, which meant that he could no longer fill the Privy Council in Scotland with bishops and royalists that would support him. As a gesture of goodwill, Charles made the Covenanting commander Alexander Leslie Earl of Leven, and he raised Archibald Campbell from Earl of Argyll to Marcus of Argyll. 
Charles made a lot of compromises and promises on his trip to Scotland, but few in the kingdom expected him to keep any of these promises, no matter how many times he got Gordon Brown to bleat on and on about them. Everyone knew Charles would try and fuck Scotland over again, but Charles being Charles, everyone also knew he'd make a complete arse of it when he did. He was very much the 17th century's Boris Johnson, although I don't think Boris Johnson is going to end up being beheaded. More likely he'll be caught receiving head. The Covenanters had crawled Charles's bluff and won easily. The Bishop Wars were the precursor for war across all three of Charles's kingdoms. In October 1641 there was a Catholic rebellion in the north of Ireland that was put down by a large Scots Covenanting army sent to defend Protestant settlers in Ulster. And they've been going back every year since just to make sure it doesn't happen again. You know, not that they'd be much use as soldiers. Most of them are over 20 stone. Seriously though, like how far are these actual orange walks? Because most of the folk on them look like they can't walk the length themselves. Within five years it'll be an orange mobility scooter, inverted commas, walk. Crucially for Charles, the many grievances of the English parliamentarians or that the English parliamentarians had with the king they were boiling to the surface, and those who held these grievances had seen the ease with which the Covenanters had defeated the king in Scotland. They were now emboldened to make their own move. Just two years after the conclusion of the Bishop Wars in Scotland, England would descend into civil war, and war would break out across all three of Charles's kingdoms. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so, so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you'll know that each week on the podcast, I try and match what we've been talking about with a malt whiskey from Scotland. And then I try and send someone who deserves a, a bottle of that malt whiskey. And the way in which I do that is I, I basically ask you, the listeners, to send me the equivalent of a cup of coffee or a pint of beer. If you were to, if you've listened to a few episodes and you were to meet me in real life and you'd be like, do you know what, Daniel, I'd, uh, I'd buy you a pint. I'd buy you a pint. Well, you can do that. You can do that by going to buy me a coffee forward slash Montebank and leave me the equivalent of a price of a cup of coffee or a, a pint of beer. It's massively, massively appreciated. And when I get enough money, I send someone who deserves a bottle of that whiskey. If you are a regular listener to the podcast, you're quite a religious listener, then you can become a patron of the podcast. You can go onto patreon.com forward slash Montebank and basically um, you can give me the price of a cup of coffee every month. It's just £3, but it goes a huge, huge way to me being able to raise enough money to, to really cheer someone up and send someone who deserves a bottle of whiskey. Uh, you can nominate someone to receive a bottle of whiskey when you leave me your coffee amount, your, your three quid on buy me a coffee, just leave a wee comment or you can send me a DM on my social media. I'm on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Montebank Scotland. Send me a wee DM nominating someone or you can send me an email as well, daniel at montebanktours.com. Uh, basically, I just choose someone at random and if I raise enough money through my buy me a coffee and Patreon accounts, I send that person a bottle of whiskey. That's how it works. Uh, today's podcast, I am going to match with uh, Oban, one of the classic malts. And I'm matching today's podcast with Oban because it's it's deep in Argyle, kind of Campbell territory. And this was a very successful kind of period for the Marcus of Argyle, for Archibald Campbell, who we talked about in the podcast. So that's why uh, I'm dedicating this episode to Oban. Oban is one of the classic malts. 
Uh, it's got very light smokiness. It's got a very light peatiness. It's got a wee kind of toffiness. Medium bodied. Their standard more. Their standard malt is fourteen years old, so they don't rush it. It's really subtle. It's really delicious. It's one of the classic Scottish malts. So if you would like to nominate someone to receive a bottle of Oban, you know what to do. Get in touch. Um, please give me a follow on social media if you can on Instagram and Twitter. I'm on there at Montebank Scotland. Uh, I have a YouTube channel as well, the Montebank History of Scotland. Please subscribe to that. And please, 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 if you can, like the podcast, rate the podcast, tell a friend about the podcast. It all helps massively. really, really does help me get up the ranking. So please, please do that. And also, now that uh, restrictions are starting to lift here in Scotland, I, uh, I'm back up and running as of next week with my comedy walking tour. So if you're visiting Scotland or if you know anyone that's going to Scotland, coming to Edinburgh, then please, please tell them, oh, I listen to this podcast, this guy Daniel, he does comedy walking tours of Edinburgh, you should check him out, please point them in my direction, it would be massively appreciated. And uh, that's basically it, I do hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I'll see you all next time. Cheerio now, bye bye!